View family, welcome home. The View is a place of real and imperfect people coming together to worship the real and perfect God. We believe that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and our mission is to make His name known in the city of Memphis. No matter what you've been through, no matter where you've come from, you belong here. Here at The View, we are training up believers to be bold enough to use their voice for the gospel. Since Christ died for the sins of the world, since He gave up His life for us, we're called to give up our lives for Him. In other words, it's not about me anymore. This semester, we're going to talk about love, a word that's thrown around so casually. But what does true, sacrificial love look like? How do we live in it, and how do we show it to others? We need to look to the one who sacrificed his life for us. This is real love. Psalm 51 tonight. This is the third week of Psalm 51, but it's uh, I'm not sure what week it is in real love. We're a few weeks in now. We are in the middle of this sermon series. We're in the middle of this campaign, if you will, this, this culture setter called Real Love. Uh, comes from many places throughout Scripture. Mark chapter 12, uh, John, uh, John chapter 9. So many places in Scripture where real love, we want to walk with Christ in a way that other people experience supernatural love when they interact with us. Not fake love, not superficial love, not even churchy love, which is fine, but supernatural love. This mission we have been on is called real love. And I want to ask you a question from the very beginning. I want you to think about the person in your life who has shown you real love, Christ-like love. Think about somebody in your life who has impacted you in a huge way. What about that person impacted you so profoundly that they probably, a lot of us, instantly have somebody come to mind that has impacted us by showing us Christ-like, real love, as we have right here on this poster board? What about that impacted you in a real way? Because when you do, when you come across somebody who is walking with the Lord and, and shows you Christ-like love, it changes you, does it not? Sometimes one small act of kindness is all somebody needs for life change. You ever been there before? One small act of kindness. So who was it for you? Um, what we've been doing is we've been looking at King David, we look, looking at Psalm 51, knowing that he fell into some of the worst sin you could fall into. He fell into murder. He fell into adultery. He fell into manipulation. I mean, David... The man after God's own heart really messed up, really messed up. You know what? There's some people in here tonight who have really messed up, and I'm one of them, all of us. We've messed up. We have a problem called sin. You don't need Christianity. You don't need the Bible to tell you about sin. You look around at our world, and you see misery. You see brokenness. You look at families. You see uh, disunity all over the world. There's people in here tonight who have experienced some of what David's going through. And why we're looking at Psalm 51 is because no matter what we go through, no matter what we experience, when we repent, there's always restoration. There's always a rising up that God does in our life when we're willing to come to him and fall down. When you're willing to humble yourself. And we've seen that over the last few weeks in Psalm 51. Now, the title of this that I want you to write down tonight is this. A love that lasts. 
I think that's beautiful. I might write, write a poem called that one day. Aliana has inspired me. A love that lasts. I think that's beautiful. I'm going to give you three things tonight that we need, that David prays for in order to live, experience, and know a love that will last far past this temporary world that will last for eternity. Three things he prays for in his prayer. Now, I went to the park, Brunswick Park. I think it's actually called Freeman Smith Park. It's off of um, Highway 70. I went to Brunswick Park over the weekend, and uh, I took my Bible. I had some time with the Lord, some good time. I was able to read and pray and memorize some scripture and just, you know, me and the Lord at this park. And while I was at this park, as I was thinking about the sermon, as I was thinking about a love that lasts, I saw a couple of things, and I read about something I want to share with you at the very beginning before we jump into our verses for tonight. The first thing that I saw at Brunswick Park as I was sitting there was this sweet, sweet, older couple. Have you ever seen a sweet, older couple and it just bless your heart? <laughs> I was sitting there watching these sweet, older people who were married, and I almost started crying just walking, watching them walk through this park. <laughs> it was incredible. It was so fun for me, and they probably thought I was a creep because I was staring at them, but it was so fun for me to watch how this husband and this wife, uh, when they would come to the curb, the husband, after 70, maybe 50 years of marriage, they weren't quite 90, <laughs> be a little much, <laughs> It was so adorable, it was so cute to watch the husband help his wife up onto the curb. You know, to stop and actually take the time to make sure, hey, does she have the support to get up on the curb when they would approach that? It was so sweet to watch how she would fix his collar without him having to ask. She would just look and his collar would be messed up and she would go and she would naturally fix it. And you just see this couple that had been together for 50 years, some odd years, I'm guessing here, I don't know. But seeing them still living in a love that lasted caring for each other, doing things for each other, without having to be told or asked, just caring for each other, loving each other. You think about all the trials they've probably gone through, all the potential arguments, all the times that they could have split, split up, and I just sat there watching this sweet couple still in love. As I was at this park, I also read a story about a missionary who was a doctor, um, and he was stationed in uh, Ethiopia. His name was Nathan Barlow, and he was a doctor, and his role in Ethiopia was to focus on people who had uh, disabilities below their hips, people who had a hard time with foot disease and, and joints and all those kind of things. He was stationed in Ethiopia. His story's powerful. I don't have time to go into all of it. I put a couple bullet points now. Um, he had to leave Ethiopia to go back to the United States because he had a toothache and he had to leave. And he hated that he had to leave Ethiopia. He hated that he went back to the United States. So when he got to the United States, he told the dentist, he said, hey, I don't ever want to have to leave Ethiopia for a toothache again. So I want you to pull out every single one of my teeth. <laughs> Told the dentist that. He said, pull out every single one of them. I don't ever want to have to leave and come back to the States again. So the dentist literally pulled out all of his teeth and put in fake ones so that he would never have to come back because that's what the Lord put on his heart because he loved the people of Ethiopia so much. And you know what? He stayed there until his last breath sharing Jesus with those people. I think about how he had every moment and every reason in the world to run from the mission field, and yet he stayed because he had a love that lasted. And then I saw my favorite, probably one of my favorite ones was a dad and a son throwing a baseball. And I hope that they're not here tonight. I hope they didn't wander in tonight because I'm going to tell you something. This kid was terrible at baseball. <laughs> this kid could not catch. I got embarrassed watching him. It was one of those things where you look at somebody and you're like, yeah, I probably shouldn't watch that. <laughs> like, I felt bad. Like, I was dropping the ball. Like, he would literally, he could, come on, son, you got this. He'd throw him the ball. The kid would be like, boom, trip. <laughs> Hit off the glove. I watched this kid. I really hope he's not watching the live stream with his dad right now. 
that would be tough. <laughs> that would be tough, man. He quit. <laughs> you don't come back from something like this. <laughs> oh, man. He's not watching, though. He was eight. Way too young for us. <laughs> Might be in our fourth and fifth grade ministry. Um, <laughs> I watched this kid drop the ball over and over and over. And what his dad did, he gave him a second chance, third chance, fourth chance. His dad, in patience and kindness, continued throwing the ball, <laughs> even though his son couldn't catch it. And I just sat there watching once again, like a creep, <laughs> at this dad throw his son the ball over and over and over again. I talk about how this dad has such a love for his son that even though he fails time and time again, the dad continues to give him another chance. What does that sound like? <laughs> See, we as human beings fail time and time again, and yet our father, when we repent, gives us another chance. <laughs> as I thought about all these I realized that they had found a love that lasted past the honeymoon phase. I realized that in these three stories, they found a love that endured, a love that forgave. And then I thought about Jesus Christ himself. How we cannot even begin to fathom the love he has for us to humble himself, to come down to earth, to be beaten, mocked, spit on, and tortured, and still chooses to love us. We can't even fathom that kind of love, and yet it's a love that lasted. In Luke 23, 32 to 37, this will be on the screen. Um, it says, and this is one of the most powerful moments in the life of Jesus, I believe. It says that two others who were criminals were led away, there it is on the screen, to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified Jesus. They crucified him for your sins and for my sins, and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And look at what the next verse says. Jesus prays, Father Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. There's people in our lives we won't forgive because they gave us a bad look. And Jesus forgave us for nailing him to a cross. That's love that we can't fathom. He had real love for us. And then I thought about these three instances at the park. And I thought about what we see when we look at the majority of the world and when we look at believers today. As I watched that old couple, I couldn't help but think about the divorce rates in America. I couldn't help but watch this older couple who were in love with each other. I thought about how divorce rates are so high, even in the church. As I watched that old couple, I thought about how many people hit a rough patch and call it quits. As I read about that missionary who stuck it out in Ethiopia, I thought about how quickly most of us are willing to jump friend groups. He's dying, having his teeth pulled out to stay with the people of Ethiopia. And the minute one of our friends says something we don't like, we're ready to go get a whole new group. Listen, if your friends are causing you to sin, find a new group of friends. Continue ministering to them, though. But if your friends are just not doing what you prefer, that's not a right for you to go and just jump friend groups. God has you right there for a reason. I wish I could talk more about that, but I can't. I think about the culture we have in America of church hopping. <laughs> How we just go to church, and if they don't meet all the preferences that we have, we can just hop to another one. If they don't play the song I want, oh, I came to the view, and Jeff Maxwell didn't sing that song I wanted him to do, so I'm going to go try another college ministry. Or we go to a church, and they don't have the lights that we want, or they don't do this, or they don't do that, and what do we do? We just hop to the next one to find our preferences. Listen, if a church is not teaching the gospel, I understand that. But if you are a member of a church, if you are a member of a college ministry, and you disagree with one of the preferences I got news for you on behalf of a lot of pastors. Get over yourself. <laughs> okay? And guess what? I'll say it to myself first. When I was a member before I was ever a pastor, 
Because I was not a pastor until just a couple years ago. When I came to The View, there's things that I didn't like. There's things I wish they would have done here or done there. And you know what I had to do? Get over myself. <laughs> Die to myself. If they don't play the song I want or, or do this that way or that way, I've got to get over it. I'm not that big of a deal. <laughs> what a lot of us need is a wake-up call. We need to realize we are not that big of a deal. I don't know who that's for tonight, but it's for somebody. As I watched that dad throw his son the baseball, I couldn't help but think how quickly we, God bless you, we give up on the people in our life. But bigger than that, I thought about how God throws us opportunities to glorify his son. So often we drop them. And there are consequences when we sin. But each time that we repent, God continues to throw us another opportunity to glorify his name and be used by him. Aren't you grateful for that tonight? Amen. <laughs> when we sin and when we repent, when we drop it, when we fumble it, <laughs> God's right there to say, hey, if you repent, I'll restore you. Here's another one. That's love for us. Now, David is going to pray, starting in verse 7, and I've got three things for you. I love that last. Look with me at verse 7. He says, and I wish we had time to go deep into this tonight. He says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Stop right there. This isn't in my notes. Blot out. You remember first week we talked about blot out. It's literally, Zach, quite like erasing, putting white out, taking a debt that was once there and blotting it out. It is no longer gone. It's no longer there. It is gone. There's a debt that we had that when Jesus Christ died and shed his blood, your debt that you had because of your sin and my sin was literally erased and washed away when we trust in him. That's incredible. That's the gospel tonight. Then verse 10, the most famous of this chapter. Create in me a clean heart, O God. You want to talk about a prayer you could pray? Every day, every hour. I don't think there's a bad time you could pray this prayer. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And that Kanye West in his album said, God did the laundry. <laughs> Doesn't he have a lyric like that? I didn't put it in my notes. I don't know if he actually does. I'm guessing here. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Verse 11. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. We know that we, we don't lose the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was different than the New Testament. It did not necessarily dwell within people, but the Spirit came upon people. And King David, when he prays this, is praying to not lose the favor of God in his life. He says, take not your spirit from me. And then verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation. I'll say it again, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then, 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 this is the first in his prayer, the first shift from internal to external. This is so big. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. If you're taking notes, I got three things. Number one, a clean heart. The very first thing that we're going to dig into tonight, you want to talk about living, experiencing, and knowing a love that lasts day to day, it's going to come from a clean heart. A clean heart. Now David, David has found himself in a terribly tough situation. He's found himself in a hard predicament. He is stuck between a rock and a hard place. 
He has committed great sin. He is feeling shame. We know that there were months, remember last week, there were months between the act, Corey, and this repentance. There was time where David tried to bury it down, but he couldn't. He couldn't alleviate the symptoms. His circumstances are not good. He has murdered. He has lied. He is being rebuked. But there's something very important that I don't want you to miss tonight because it's very easy to read this psalm and to miss something huge here. I want you to catch this, guys. David, in this chapter, is not praying for God to change his circumstances. Think about it. Think about all that we've done over the last three weeks. David is not praying for his circumstances to change. In fact, he has not, so far up to this point, prayed for one external change in his situation, in his surroundings. Not one word has been about external. Not one word has been about the mess he's in out here. Every single word, though, has been about, watch this, the mess he has in here. Now catch this, college students. A lot of times what we do in our prayers doesn't look like this. A lot of times our prayers immediately jump to the external. All we do, if we're honest, is pray for God to move externally. And there's nothing wrong with that. We all want God to move externally. A lot of our prayers are, God, get me out of this situation. Alleviate this circumstance. God, pull me through this. God, do this. God, save that person. God, show up at my workplace. God, give me all these things externally. But I want to tell you something, students, and this is so vital to your walk with the Lord. God always, God is desiring to do a movement internally before he is going to do a movement externally. He wants and desires to do a work inside of your heart before he does a work in your circumstances or your situation. But a lot of times we miss that. And I wrote this down. It hit me like a ton of bricks. I wrote down that we ask God, here it is on the screen, we ask God to change the consequences of our sin, but refuse to ask God to change us when we sin. This is one of the biggest problems that our prayer life lacks, right here. If you, and let's keep this up here for just a moment, if you will make this change in your prayer life, you will see freedom. You will see breakthroughs. We always pray, God, change this consequence, change this situation, change this circumstance. Listen, if you and I are the issue, God can change your situation a thousand times. Until you let him change you, you're going to be right back in that situation. (laughs) That's just real. If you and I look in the mirror and realize that we are the issue, we are the problem, each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire, James 1.14, if we realize that we're the issue and start praying in the middle of our sin, in the middle of our junk for God to change us, that's when finally we'll see God change our circumstances. (laughs) You want a breakthrough? Pray for the internal. At least start your prayer off with it. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Restore to me the joy of my salvation, God. Cleanse me. Wash me. David, in this prayer, is not asking for God to change his situation. He's asking for God to change his sinful heart that got him in this situation. He's saying, God, I know how I got here. So I don't need you to just change the outcome. I need you to change what got me here. I don't need you just to change the effect. God, change the cause. 
Some of you wonder why you keep having friend drama come up. You know why? It's because every time you have friend drama come up, you pray for the drama just to end and there to be peace. But you're not praying for internally within your heart what's causing that drama. So the situation alleviates, but then you find yourself right back in the situation because you haven't been changed in here. Some of you want to conquer sexual immorality. You want to conquer lust. You want to conquer being enchained to your mind. You can pray for your external circumstances. But until you start praying for an internal cleansing, you're going to find yourself right back in that moment of shame again. God wants to do a movement inside of your heart. He wants to do a movement inside of your heart, and that movement that he does here is how he's going to bring about the change you're so desiring inside of your life. I wrote this down. It won't be on the screen, but I want you to catch this tonight. You won't ever escape the misery of sin. You can try, you can run, you can fight, willpower, all these different things. You won't ever escape the misery of sin until you allow God to change you in the middle of your sin. That's when the misery lightens up. That's when you find breakthrough. David is in the middle of this junk and this garbage, and he's saying, hey, God, I know you can change my situation right now, but change me. Next time you're hurt, next time you're lonely, next time somebody betrays you, next time you mess up, next time you do that thing, that sin that you hate, you hate it, you hate it. I know you do. Next time you do, don't just pray for the consequences to go away. Pray for a clean heart. Beg, plead, plead before God for a clean heart. (laughs) David looked in the mirror and realized, hey, I'm the problem. I'm the issue. I need to be cleansed. What's fascinating here when he says create, if you don't have that verse underlined, I hope that you know it. It's popular. See it on Christian t-shirts and coffee mugs everywhere. Create in me a clean heart. What's fascinating, the verb that's used here for create is the same verb used in another place for create. Do you know where? Genesis 1-1. The same verb that David is using here for create is the same verb that's used in Genesis 1-1. In the Old Testament, this verb is used exclusively, watch this, for divine activity. This verb create is associated with divine activity. In other words, this verb is used to describe what God's hands can do, not what man's hands can do. This verb, David is praying and communicating. He is asking for God to do something that he realizes he cannot do himself. He is asking for supernatural intervention in the middle of his problem. Listen, it's David's responsibility It's your and my responsibility to beg with God for a heart change. But only he has the ability to cause that heart change. There's no willpower. There's no focus. You can't get filled up with all these self-help books. There's no self-help book that's going to help you. There's no podcaster that's going to help you if they are not preaching the word of God. There is no relief and there is no heart change apart from this right here. You need divine, supernatural intervention from the Lord. And the reason why our generation misses it is because we're running to everything else in the world we can for heart change. We're running to people. We're running to podcasts. We're running to videos. We're running to all these different things. What you need is you need to fall down at Jesus' feet. And he will create a clean heart in you. I know you're tired of shame. Let's be real. We're going to do beat around the bush. Pitter-patter about it, dance, tell you some cute stories. I know you're tired of the shame 
that sin brings. And you know what David is a great example of? That when shame builds up in you and you come to God, grace increases all the more. There is forgiveness. If Jesus forgave the ones who were crucifying him and nailing him to a cross, do you think he can forgive you? I'll tell you what I believe right now. In this room, the Spirit of God is impressing on your heart what he's desiring for you to break through from. Our hearts develop idols. You know what a big one is? Social media. (laughs) We love looking good on social media. (laughs) We love it, don't we? Let's be honest. Y'all are like, no, I'm not even on social media. You're lying. (laughs) I follow you. I see your post. I'm on there. Even though I'm old, I'll see it. (laughs) I know. We love looking good. We love looking like men and women after God's own heart. My question is, are we men and women after God's own heart in private? Jesus said it best to the Pharisees. He said, oh, you clean the outside of the cup and you clean it well. You put that cup on a shelf, that cup looks like it could be used to nourish somebody, to benefit somebody. But you don't clean the inside of it, so the minute they grab that cup, they're actually being hurt because of what's inside. A lot of us, it's not popular. I don't want you to leave, but listen, a lot of us do a great job of cleansing the outside of the cup. We look like we could benefit somebody. We look like we could be a great help to somebody. But when we have not allowed God to create a clean heart in us, we're just like that cup. We are clean on the outside. We've got everything together. Our image looks good. But when people come to us looking for kindness, looking for the spirit, looking for truth, we're unable to provide it because the inside of the cup is dirty. We have not allowed God to truly cleanse and transform the inside of us. And that's just real. I got to keep going. But that's just real. (coughs) Now, when you pray, do you pray specifically? In your Bibles, I want to point out something out to you very briefly. Turn with me to Luke chapter 8, but keep your place in Psalm 51, if you will. We're going to do a little bit of flipping tonight. Keep your place in Psalm 51, but turn with me to Luke chapter 8, and I want to point out one thing to you that I think is very fascinating. When you talk about coming to the Lord with a specific request, David is praying specifically. Right before these verses, he says, I have sinned against you and only you. My transgressions is ever before me. David is not playing hide and seek with his sin. (laughs) David's not playing hide and seek with it. It's all out there. In Luke chapter 8, this is so fascinating. If you missed this, please, please don't miss this. I really want you to get this because I think it's fascinating. In Luke chapter 8, we are in the life of Jesus, who is always the hero of every sermon, not David, Jesus. We find a woman who has a bleeding issue. And because of this bleeding issue, she was prohibited from contact with other people for fear of making them unclean. She's had this issue for 12 years. There's some people in the room who've been struggling with a certain sin for longer than 12 years. If she can get healed, you can too. Isn't that incredible? It doesn't matter if you've been struggling with that issue since you were eight years old. You come to Jesus. He'll break the chains. He'll break the chains. Do you believe that tonight? She's been struggling with this bleeding issue for 12 years. She is, I wrote this down, despised, defiled, desperate, and discouraged. And then look here, starting in verse 43, at this moment in the life of Jesus. There was a woman who had a discharge. This is chapter 8, verse 43 of Luke. 
There was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind Jesus and touched the fringe of his garment. And immediately her discharge of blood, see? And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. In other words, uh, Jesus, why is this a big deal? Let's just keep going. <laughs> Peter says, hey, the crowds are pressing in, man. Let's just keep going. And Jesus says, hold up, patience. This is important. This matters. A lot of Christians miss gospel opportunities because we're in a rush to get to the next thing. Sheesh. Some of us are coming to Jesus saying, Jesus, let's keep going. Let's keep going. He's saying, hey. You want to go out there and share the gospel in the world, but you didn't even look to the person sitting to your right or left who was a guest who was begging practically for you to be kind to them. How in the world are we going to go out there and share the gospel with lost people when we can't show kindness to believers inside the walls of the church? How in the world can we be on mission out there? We come in here not on mission. We come in here lazy. We come in here clicky. We come to the church thinking that this is hee-haw. Thinking that we just get to hang out with our friends. And look, I, we talk about community all day long, off-campus life groups. But listen to me. When there are people in here who are first-time guests, your friend group is not the priority. I say it in love. It's not a priority. Say hi to them. Fist bump them. Tell them a great thing about your day. And then open those eyes. Look around and say, who's here that God may want me to talk to? If it is a friend, talk to them. Encourage them. Love them. If God puts it on your heart to talk to your friends here at the View, do it. But what I'm betting is that when we turn our eyes from those we're comfortable with and start looking around the room right here with the eyes of Jesus, he's going to point out people we might not be so comfortable with to go and talk to. And guess what? It might be somebody who's a different skin color than you. Can you imagine going up to somebody that you don't know that's not your skin color, that doesn't look like you, that didn't grow up like you did, that doesn't have the same culture or the same background, that wasn't taught the same things as you, going up to them and introducing yourself to them? Can you imagine? What the church could do in this world if we operated like that? Can you imagine what the church could do if we stopped operating in an earthly way and started operating in a heavenly way? It started looking more like heaven. I don't know where that came from, but it was needed. Oh, yeah. Jesus says again, someone touched me. Verse 46 here. Out of breath, i got to start jogging more. <laughs> My wife's been on me for that. She told me that. She said, Darren, you get out of breath. Way too easy up there. I didn't even go down the stairs this time. But Jesus said, <laughs> y'all laugh, but uh, y'all slept in during snow week too. So all right, you can laugh all you want. <laughs> I don't know. I know. Uh-huh. We all got Disney+. Plus. But Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And then verse 47 When the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, imagine hearing these words, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Now, let me break this down for a minute. And I mean, lock in with me here. When you read this, it reads like a scene in a movie, doesn't it? (laughs) 
Like, it kind of looks like a scene you would see in a movie. Like, it's all dramatic and everything, and she's, like, crawling to Jesus. She's had these years of trying to get healed, and she couldn't, which is true. And she's calling to Jesus, and she, she barely reaches out, and it's, like, right there, and she barely gets her hand on the robe. It's all she could grab was the end of the robe, and she's healed, and it's this dramatic scene, and that's great, and we love cinematic scenes. In reality, that's not actually what's happening. Yes, she's gone a long time without being healed, but I want you to know something. This is not a random grab of Jesus' robe. This is not a, that's all she could grab was the end of his garment. That's not what's happening here. No, she is laser focused on grabbing a piece of his robe for a reason. She is laser focused on the end of his robe for a reason. She is bent on grabbing the end of his robe for a reason, but you'll miss it. See, if you don't understand how Jewish men dressed at the time of Jesus, and if you don't understand what the Old Testament in Malachi says about Jesus, you'll miss the significance of this moment. There's been times I've read this passage and missed this so small for years, and I want you to understand this. When she comes to Jesus and she grabs the end of his robe, she is specifically, personally, and in faith, laser-focused on healing. Here's why. In this time, Jewish men, the way they dressed, they had robes, and at the end of their robes were tassels. Tassels. We don't dress like that, but tassels were at the end of his robe. You say, Daniel, is that scriptural? I don't know. You tell me. Numbers 15, verse 37, the Lord said to Moses, this will be on the screen, Numbers 15, 37, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel, here we go, Speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels. Oh, there it is. Daniel's onto something here. Speak to the people of Israel. Check everything I say. I'm serious. Check it. Speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corner of their garments throughout their generations and to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. It shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord and to do them. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> like remember them and do them. <laughs> Now, some of us, that's the word we need to hear tonight, is literally just simply that. Remember what God commanded you to do, and then do it. <laughs> it's not rocket science. Do it. Not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes. So these tassels, lock in with me here, these tassels at the end of their rope were a constant reminder to, and I'm even talking to the people on the live stream right now, to obey the commandments of the Lord these tassels. Jesus, as an observant Jewish rabbi, would have worn a one-piece, finely woven, long-sleeved tunic with an opening for the head. It would have looked like a rectangular coat with, watch, four tassels on each corner. So this tassel is what this woman, who's been bleeding for 12 years, so wanting healing, she reaches out for this tassel. And grabs it. You say, Daniel, that's cool. What does the tassel have to do with anything? Watch this. Tassels had a huge connection. Watch this. Don't zone out on me. To the Messiah. In fact, did you know Malachi, it's the last book of the Old Testament, prophesies about Jesus coming. In Malachi 4.2, it says this. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. Right here. But for you who fear my name... The son of righteousness will rise with healings in his wings. Watch this. The son of righteousness is a reference to Jesus the Messiah. And what's so cool about this is when it says wings, it's teaching us that the Messiah, Jesus, the Savior, will quite literally have the power to heal all people 
from his wings. It's imagery. It's symbolism. He will have the power to heal from his wings. And so the tassels on the four corners of the robe symbolically represent the wings of the Messiah. So when she sees Jesus, she in this moment, without even saying a word, she is showing in an act that she believes not only is this the son of righteousness, not only is this the Messiah, but in his wings is healing. So when I come to Jesus, 12 years of struggling with discharge of blood, when I come to Jesus, I know where I'm reaching. I'm reaching for his wings. What are his wings? Those tassels at the four corner of his robe. So literally in this moment, she falls at Jesus. She comes to Jesus. She says, this is the Messiah. There's healing in his wings. So I'm coming for the tassel. I'm going to grab hold of Jesus, and I'm not walking away until I'm healed. What she does is the same thing that David is doing in his prayer. She comes to Jesus specifically. She says, hey, I need to be healed. I know what my issue is. It's blood. You in your wings, you in your glory have the power to heal me, so I'm going to grab a hold and not walk away until I'm healed. And not only that, she comes in faith. Without even having to say a word, she shows that she has faith in him. When King David comes to the Lord in this prayer, he doesn't come just throwing up, God, forgive me for, for all my sins. Okay, good. No, he comes specifically with his issue. And when he says create this huge word in Genesis 1-1, he is showing his faith that he believes the God who created the heavens and the earth. If creating the heavens and the earth is easy for our Lord God, he can show create a clean heart in me. Let me ask you a question after all that. When you pray, do you pray specifically? I ask myself that every day. I'm serious. Do you pray specifically, not just for other people? That's great. Do you pray specifically for the idols in your heart for God to break them? Or do you just say, God, break every idol? Or do you name them? God, break the idol of singleness in my life. Break the idol of marriage in my life. Break the idol of sex in my life. Break the idol of money in my life. Break the idol of success in my life. Break these idols. Tear them down. And God, once you have broken these, boy, these bones, make them rejoice and then create in me a clean heart, O oh God, that will rejoice and restore at your salvation. Do you pray specifically? Do you pray specifically? Literally, when you come to Jesus, are you targeting the areas you want him to move the way this woman did, the way David did? Or is it just throw up prayers? Ain't nothing wrong with them throughout the day. But is all your prayer life just throw up prayers? God bless this. God bless that. I could sit here and talk all day. We didn't even talk about praying for other people. Do we pray specifically for the people in our life? Ain't nothing wrong with making mention of people in our prayer life. But if our prayer life is only making mention of people, I think we're leaving prayers on the table. Let me tell you something. Our pastor said this, and I stand by it. There are some things God will do whether we pray for it or not. Sun's coming up tomorrow. We believe it will. There's also things God will not do unless you and I pray. When you pray, you see God move his hand. What is it for you that you need to specifically name to the Lord? And then can I ask you one more question before we move on? When you pray, do you pray in faith? It's simple. Ain't groundbreaking, ain't a catchy one-liner, isn't it? Some story about me on the playground. <laughs> I don't know, nothing wrong with those. 
Do you pray in faith? I ask myself, do I pray, Dawson, in faith, believing that God can do what he can do? When you use the same verb that describes God creating the heavens and the earth, you believe God's a big God. You know what some of us in here need? A refocus on how big God actually is. I need to keep going. Once God gives you a clean heart, you will love the people in your life in a way that's deeper and more real than you could have ever imagined. Than you could have ever, ever imagined. Look with me at Psalm. Let's turn back. I know you got your Bibles marked. Thanks for flipping with me. I hope that you don't have paper cuts. Psalm 51. Looking at, thank you for laughing at that one person on the front row got me. I see you. I see you. Thank you. Verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Number two, not only do we pray for a clean heart, but we pray, number two, a confident salvation. A confident salvation. An assurance in our faith. First John 5, he prays that believers would be assured of the eternal life that they have been given through the cross. What believers need is a confident salvation. A confident moment where we have fallen on the ground, repented of our sins, and believed in Jesus, and then confidently walk in that same salvation we have. I'll tell you what David's saying here, very clearly. And it ain't catchy. What he's telling God is what a lot of us are going to have to get to the point in our walk to say. He's telling God, take me back. Take me back. He's saying, God, take me back to where all this began. God, take me back to where I had joy over just being saved. God, take me back to when I first met you. God, take me back to the very beginning of all of this. God, I'm overwhelmed by my sin. My sin is ever before me. God, I'm overwhelmed at being king. He stayed back. He didn't go to war. I'm overwhelmed at all this happened, being the king of Israel. Sometimes, for me, I get overwhelmed seeing what God has done here at The View since I've been here for five years. I walked in five years ago, scared, a first-time guest, afraid to talk to anybody, scared to death that somebody would look at me. And over the last five years, I have seen God move in this ministry, whether I was a part of it or not, move in this ministry in a way I could have never, ever, ever imagined. And you know what? Sometimes it gets overwhelming, and I've got to fall down on the floor and say, God, take me back. <laughs> take me back to that park when I was 21 years old on my way to hell, had no hope in my life, and I fell down before you, and it was just you and me. And it was just you and me. What some of you need to pray is, God, take me back. Sometimes we get so busy with ministry, we get so busy with living life, we get so busy with classes that we don't even have joy over being saved. We don't even have joy over being a Christian anymore because we're too busy judging others. <laughs> we don't even have joy over being a Christian because we're too busy doing work. Work, 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 work all the time. And we can't even stop and say how grateful I am just to have eternal life. Listen to me. If the answer to your sin problem, if the solution to not going to hell was found in a moment where you were broken before the Lord in repentance over sin, why in the world do we think that the solutions to our problems can be found anywhere else? The church was not birthed in a business meeting. It wasn't birthed because they became so professional and figured it all out and found all the answers. It was birthed from a prayer meeting. <laughs> As our pastor loves to say, I wrote this down. I want you to 
Think about this this week. When you lose your all for heaven, you will live for the applause of the world. Once you lose your all for heaven, you will live for the applause of the world. Obeying Christ is not an obligation when you remind yourself of your salvation in Christ. (laughs) You want it not to be a job, remind yourself that he has saved you. When I played high school basketball, I wasn't very good. I don't know what you're laughing for. I heard one person go, figures. I wasn't very good. I was okay. I could shoot. Some of you are like, of course. I could shoot it. And I had it here, but I lacked a lot of ability as a player. But I loved the game as a basketball player. And I'll never forget one time I had a terrible, terrible game. Awful. The kind that makes you want to quit the sport. It's embarrassing. I missed probably every shot that I took. You ever had a game like that from the athletes? Or video games, I played video games too. Some nights on Halo, I never got a win. I had to go home sad. I mean, look, I can relate to everybody here, okay? I took bad losses on Halo and on the basketball court. I get it. I had a bad game. I had a wide open shot to tie the game in an intense moment. And I was like, oh, this is it. I knew my crush was in the stands watching. Family was there. I was like, oh, this is a moment I've been waiting for. I catch the ball. When I tell you the minute I shot it, I knew exactly what it was. Air ball. Like, I felt him. I was like, my arm did not push that ball at all. <laughs> and it airballed in front of everybody. It was, this was that game. Terrible. Turnovers and everything. I left the game <coughs> so mad at myself, hating myself. I was so consumed as a high schooler with being perfect, with having it all figured out, with my image. I wanted people to see me in a way where I succeeded everything I did. I didn't want any weak moments, and I was I was hating basketball. I felt so low down for this moment. If you've ever been there, you know what I'm saying. I felt terrible. (coughs) After the game, I went and sat in my backyard. I'll never forget this. I went and sat in my backyard. Backyard was nothing fancy. I was frustrated. I was beaten down. And I remember looking around at the driveway I played basketball growing up in. I remember looking at the basketball goal. I had this old basketball goal. It was beaten up. It wasn't nice or anything, but it was nice for me. And we had this basketball, old street ball with the rough how you rub your hand on it, had a rough feel to it, not nice. But I remember sitting there looking around and thinking about the first time I ever picked up a basketball and how far I had come from that initial love and joy, how much I had been consumed, not with my deep love for the game itself, but my love to impress others and to be seen by others and to be known by others and to succeed and to have all these things that everybody wanted and statistics and personal gain and money one day and all these things that I was obsessing over. I picked up a ball. I started dribbling around in my backyard. The ball would go everywhere because the driveway was beaten up. There were rocks everywhere. So you try to dribble, it hit a rock, it'd go flying off. You couldn't even dribble. But I walked around in this moment and I realized something. I realized that there was no hardwood, just beaten up driveways. I looked at the hill in my backyard. I realized there was no crowd anymore. I was not playing for any crowd. I was in my backyard, just me and this ball. And I realized something in this moment. I realized that when you forget why you fell in love with something, the minute you have a bad day, you will not remember at all why you should persevere, why you should go forward. And for some of you, you've been playing for the crowd. You've been living this life all for people to see what kind of Christian you are. And you wonder why your initial love for Jesus has faded away. 
We get so far along in ministry. We get so impressed with ourselves. We think we're really doing something. We think we're really it. And we forget our initial love for Jesus Christ. And what happens is we fall in love with the ministry of Jesus. But we fall out of love with the Jesus of our ministry. We fall in love in what we can do for him instead of what he has already done for us. And when you get into that place, there is nothing that will cure that remedy instead of coming to God and saying, take me back. Take me back to where I fell in love with you. Take me back to where the game was just about being in a broken up driveway and shooting shots and having fun, not what other people thought about me. Jesus, take me back to where ministry was just learning more about you and seeing life change and not other people being impressed by me. God, take me back. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Remind me how desperate of a sinner I was and how good and gracious you were to save me. Once you do that, once you go back to the backyard, once you go back to the starting ground, you will remember why you fell in love with Jesus. And when you remember why you fell in love with Jesus, there's nothing that could happen in this world. There's no bad game. There's no bad day. There's no bad job. There's nothing bad that can happen in this world to you that you cannot persevere through. When you remember your why. Why'd you fall in love with him? For me, it wasn't because anybody thought I was a good preacher. (laughs) What does that matter if you think I'm good at preaching or not? I fell in love with Jesus face down in the ground when I realized how much he gave up for my soul. So why are you fretting so much about what other people perceive of you as a believer? That's not why you fell in love with Jesus. Did you really give your life to Jesus just to impress other people? No, you gave your life to Jesus because you realized in that moment there was no other way. No other way worth walking except Jesus Christ. And even right now, I want to give you a moment right where you are. I just want you to bow your heads. We're not stopping. I want you to just stop right where you are. Don't put your stuff away. I just want you to pause right here and just bow your head for a moment. I want you to literally take a moment tonight at our service. And I want you to pray this. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Say, God, take me back. Take me back to where this began. The game of basketball had become so much about production. Big lights, big crowds. What my soul needed was a driveway. And you know what? In ministry and life, it's very easy for it to become all about production, big lights, big crowds. Maybe what you need right now is a driveway. (laughs) Maybe you need a one-on-one moment with Jesus right now. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Take me back. If you will, will you look up at me? Stay with me here. In the song, Nothing Else, part of the lyrics at the end of the song are some of my favorite lyrics. They say this, I'm coming back to where we started when I first felt your love. You're all that matters, Jesus. You're all that matters. I'm coming back to what really matters.
just your heart. I just want to bless your heart, Jesus. It takes four seconds for for silence to become awkward. Did you know that? That's how far our culture has fell away from sitting in silence. Four seconds, and it becomes awkward. I want to challenge you to do something. This week, this won't be on the screen, this week, will you consider doing something? I want to invite you to join me. I'm going to do it too. In sitting in 10 minutes of silence. Silence. Will you do this with me? Will you try it with me? 10 minutes of silence. In your closet. Phone away. Take the Apple Watch off. That's a trap. (laughs) Some of us put our phone in there and we're still like, even sometimes we're like this. Now, okay, I'm good. Would you sit in silence for 10 minutes and say that in your mind, praying it back to God? Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. If God doesn't give us anything in that 10 minutes, it's still worth it because it would be 10 minutes that we're doing nothing but sitting in his presence. (laughs) We don't have to get anything out of it. We just sit there and pray, restore to me the joy of your salvation. And the very last thing, in verse 13, where he, where he ends this part, he says, then, after all that, harmony, then, the first external prayer, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Number three, lastly, a care for people. You want to talk about a love that lasts, it's going to take a clean heart from the Lord, a confident salvation where we remember where all this began, but then lastly, a care for people. I don't have much time to go on on this. I'll just say one thing about discipleship here, and I don't want you to miss this. You want to talk about what is discipleship? Discipleship essentially is this. If you are being discipled, watch. It's caring enough about your walk with Jesus to ask somebody else to teach you. That's discipleship. You want to talk about being involved in an off-campus life group. It's caring enough about your walk with Jesus to ask somebody to not only teach you the word, but then hold you accountable to doing what it says. That's discipleship. And when you commit to discipleship, and you commit to reading God's word, praying, memorizing the scripture, showing up to that time, when they get on you, if you shut down and quit, you are not holding to the agreement that you said at the beginning of discipleship. That's discipleship. You want to know what it is on the flip side since we're commanded to make disciples? When you are discipling someone else, watch this. It's simply caring enough about another person's soul to be willing to teach them the Bible. You want to show real love to somebody? Teach them. Disciple them. Teach them the word. Teach them the truths of Scripture. That's the most impactful way you can show somebody real love is teaching, encouraging, and exhorting. We have a discipleship problem in the church. It's because we view it as a program. Our program's essential, absolutely, but you know what discipleship is? It's people, and it's a care for them. Let's all stand up in this moment. The band's going to make their way back out here, and I want to just say one quick word to you as you're putting your stuff away. As we get ready to worship one more time. 
Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. When we were talking about off-campus life groups, I was standing right over there after the baptisms were done. And I want you to get this. This is my final thing of the night. For me, I couldn't help but think about a man named Brian Jimenez. Very few of you would know who Brian is. When I first started coming to The View, when I was in your shoes, when I was where some of you are tonight, I was coming to The View, but that was it. I was involved in a big setting. I was involved. I was doing all these things, but that was about it. And this guy named Brian, when I tell you that this is the most persistent person you will ever meet in your entire life, this guy will not quit. He will not give up. We had at the time, it's so fascinating here at The View, when I was just a student, we had a Wednesday night Bible study. And every single week, on the dot, I mean on the minute, he would text me, hey man, you coming to life groups? Just like that. Oh, he's not watching the live stream. He might be watching tonight. It's going to be tough to explain that. Hey man, it's not actually that hot. Now I feel bad. <laughs> oh gosh, I'm going to have to apologize. He would say that. He would say just like that. He would say, uh, are you coming to life group tonight? Are you coming to Bible study tonight? And you know what I did? I knew to Christianity, and I just lie my tail off. Wouldn't care. I just lie. So, nah, man, I got something going on tonight. I, I'm not going to be able to make it. It's on a Wednesday night, just like our off-campus life groups. He hit me back, too. I told you he's persistent. He say, you sure? <laughs> like, what is it? <laughs> I'd make up another lie. The reason why I didn't want to go to that Bible study is because I didn't know anybody. And, man, I was so afraid of what people thought of me. I was so scared to be judged since I was new to all this. Matter of fact, even as a believer sometimes, I get so afraid of people not liking me that I've been doing work with the Lord on conquering this. You know what? If somebody doesn't like me and I'm walking with the Lord, that's on them to figure out, not me. Now, the Lord's been doing some work. I was so afraid to walk in the door. And it was at the view. It was easier for me to go than it is for you to go to a house. I wasn't even having to pull up to somebody's house, but I was so afraid. 22 years old, just like you, so afraid. And every single week, he kept texting. And you know what? When I wouldn't respond to him the next week, you know what he would do? Some of you are like, he probably quit. He probably gave up. He started calling. <laughs> I said, oh, I'm not going to quit. If you're not going to text me back, I'm going to give you a phone call. I'd answer it. Hey, man. <laughs> Love to have you a Bible study tonight. And finally, after like eight weeks of lying and telling this guy no, I said, Fine. <laughs> I'll go. If it will get you off my back, I will go. <laughs> and as scared as I was, as afraid as I was to walk into a small setting, sometimes it's harder to go into small settings than it is big settings. As scared as I was, I went. And the reason why I broke down and went was not just to get him off my back, but because he said something to me. He said, Daniel, it's great that you're coming to The View, but who is your small group community? Who are the people that are living with you and asking you hard questions. It's not happening on Monday. On Monday, you can come and consume. Who's challenging you and pushing you and teaching you in a smaller setting, the deeper truths of the Bible? And I realized, you know what? I'm not growing. As great as it is to be involved in this, I was growing in knowledge from sermons and I was worshiping more, but I realized I'm not growing deeply as a believer. I'm treading water. And so I said, man, I will go. I will try it. I will try community at The View. I don't know what these people are like. But I'll try it. And I walked in the door 
for this small Bible study, and I met some of the people who are my best friends to this day. People I would have never met on a Monday night service because I went to that Bible study. It changed my life. That's your pastor telling you his testimony, that the view is great. The view had a huge impact on me, but my life was changed when I truly dove into community and said, no more going through the motions. No more being just a consumer. I want more out of the Christian life. I want real friends who are going to show me real love. And sometimes real love is tough love. (laughs) It changed my life. I don't know who needs to hear this tonight. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to go to somebody's house on a Wednesday night life group because it could change your life. Your potential best friends for life could be at that life group. Why would you miss out on something like that?